Hey everybody, welcome back to Java Chat. And this one I've I've like been looking forward to because I I didn't. Let's just say the stammering should tell you exactly how excited I am to interview this this person because it's it's pretty freaking amazing who this is and what he's done, uh, and the fact that he's an entrepreneur, which is also awesome, and and understands startups and understand he's 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 been down the run. Let's put down let's put it this way, he's run the full rail, and did it both on the, the, the pump cart and then on a train. <laughs> Is that yeah. fair to say? Is that pretty fair? <laughs> yeah, if you say so. Because <laughs> what it became, uh, 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 anyway, you guys will hear this. His name's Nicholas Henriksen. And he founded a company called Carlipso after graduating from Stanford Business College. And then he went through the, the Y Combinator, which is, you know, some others that have gone in like Airbnb, DoorDash, Stripe, those guys. He raised a total of $10 million in venture funding by 2015 and then sold the business off to Carvana. You guys know what Carvana is, right? I'm sure you do. It's the guys with the automated the, the, the vending machine, the car vending machine in Arizona. I thought that was the most ingenious thing I'd ever seen. Yeah. The coins are a little large, but, you know, that's beside the point. And then they joined into the, the pre-IPO. They went public and so on and so forth. And that's what we're here to talk about is that whole journey. So – Thank you, Nicholas, for coming and hanging out on Java Chat and coming to share your story, man. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for this. Yeah, this is this is this has been a. I've been waiting for this one. I think we we asked you to come on like, like somewhere around last month, just a little bit, and give us a little idea of your background, dude. I mean, I get it. You, sure. you graduated from Stanford Business College. That's cool. But the entrepreneur part. I mean, how did first off? How did you come up with Carlipso? What was the motivation behind that? And, you know, go through that run. Sure. Why don't I take a step even further back, tell you where I'm originally from, what motivated me to go to college, uh, to Stanford. Do and it. Then, Do it. Um, the entrepreneurial journey. So I'm from Germany originally. I'm born and raised in Germany. Deutschland, Deutschland. I'm, ha I'm half German. That's why I'm doing well, that. Sorry. But that's the version we don't <laughs> sing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It, it, I always do that for fun. It's, it's but yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. don't do that in germany um, so i was born and raised in munich that's where the oktoberfest is from um, exactly my that, mom is that, from leipheim oh no way yes way my mother is originally from leipheim oh, you'll wow. have to talk to her one of these oh, days she still speaks their german so you guys would get along <laughs> that's pretty funny <laughs> anyway so you moved over from germany i moved over in 2011 wanted to go to a business school amongst others to get into tech. Sure. Because if you, you can't just move to San Francisco thinking you know everyone and understand it. Like <laughs> I needed to figure out a way for me to get into the community. Right. Um, was hoping Stanford could be that way. I had no idea how incredible it worked out uh, on that front. And so I met a bun bunch of friends, really impressive people, including one of my friends, classmates that know, co-founder, uh, Chris, who was a huge car enthusiast. And nice. so while at business school, he was working on a car. He had like four different all-project cars. His first car was a DeLorean, the one from back Really? Then. Yeah. Nice. He had bought it on Craigslist with his dad, and it was wrecked, and they put it together, and then it ended up driving. Um, really? They were actually able to get it functional again? Yeah. That's cool. Apparently, it's not a very fast car. No. Apparently, it barely makes it fast enough to time travel. <laughs> <laughs> but barely. And then... Towards the end of business school, all of a sudden, while Chris and I were thinking about starting a business in the car space, all our classmates asked us the question, hey, how do I sell my used car? I need to leave the area, get rid of the car. Ah. And we started giving advice, but then every, and this 
it's typically MBA student. Can you just sell it for me? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. No, can you sell it? You pay me for it. They're like, sure, I'll pay you for it. I'm like, oh, that's weird. No, <laughs> do you offer somebody to someone and he then volunteers to pay? Yeah. And since we wanted to do something in the startup space and we had just taken a lot of classes around, the most important thing about a startup is to find value, something yeah. valuable, and then figure yeah. out how to wrap a business around it. Mm-hmm. We thought, oh, wow, clearly there's value we can provide. And Chris, Chris had sold a bunch of cars before, so he, he felt really comfortable doing it. So he, he taught me, we were selling our, used, used, our classmates used cars. We detailed them, took photos, put them on Craigslist, met with chess drivers. And so the more cars we sold, the more people reached out to us. Oh, yeah. So really positive sign that we'd found something that people really wanted. The problem was that business doesn't scale very well. Like you end up being a car dealer. And what we said, well, the most painful part really is the test drive. Yeah. That's always the biggest like, problem. Yeah. Yeah. Because people either don't show up or show up hours late. Some just want to kick the tires. Mm-hmm. And so we said, well, let's, let's see if we can figure out a clever way to remove ourselves from that process. And so we created this box, which allowed us to create a zip car like experience where you'd swipe your ID, box opens, you can grab the key, test drive the car by yourself. The car is tracked on GPS, so we'd always know where you are. Mm-hmm. And then if the buyer wants to keep the car, it would just go to the bank, pay for it. We did all the processing of the title. And there we go. And so that started working really well. And then a bunch of our professors and lecturers who we'd asked for advice followed us and, and kept listening to us and got really excited about what we we're doing. And so we ended up raising our seed capital around from basically people associated to Stanford. Wow. And that was before we went through Y Combinator. Y Combinator is, as you said, a startup accelerator program where, where usually startups go to then raise money. Yeah, yeah, raise yeah. Money before, and then grew the business at Y Combinator. Did you, you guys didn't have, well, you, you did it inside the pre, pre-funding, so you didn't have to do, what did you guys do later, a 316, a Reg D, or what did you guys do? No, so we started out with, back then, it's changed a little bit, but back then, what, the way you would raise money as a little startup is through convertible notes. Right. Because you don't need any lawyers, you just, right. that's the standard paperwork. Sure. Um, and then the second round of funding after YC was through what's called a SAFE. Okay. Similar, similar concept. It's a simple agreement for future equity. So yeah. you agree on a valuation, you get the money and it converts into real equity later. And the reason yeah. you do that is so you don't have to spend fortunes on lawyers and put, put a real round together. <clears throat> and then in 2015, we raised a big institutional round of $8 million, bringing up the capital to all the way to $10 million, And that's when everything converted into real equity. Sure, sure. How long did that process take? Well, we, we went fundraising twice, really. After YC, like you, you got to do fundraising because most companies go there to fundraise. Yeah, sure, remember. sure. And so our, this business model, this peer-to-peer thing didn't quite work. We weren't very confident that this would be the, the end state of the business. And when we were pitching it to investors, they realized, yeah, this doesn't scale and this is not very, very techy quite yet. And the reason being is you have these two people with different interests. You have the seller who wants more for the car and the buyer who wants to pay less. Sure. And so what we ended up doing, we pivoted away from this peer-to-peer model into a model where we would work with institutions. So leasing companies, rental companies, fleets. These institutions have a lot of cars. They can't sell directly to consumers. Instead, we advertise these cars on their behalf, found a buyer, and if and when we found a buyer, we would buy the car, recondition it, deliver it. And so that's the business that started taking off. That's different from... 
Is is that the same as the Carvana model? I think that's that's slightly different, isn't it? It is slightly different. I'll tell you why and and <laughs> how how these two came together later on. That's the model that took off, and then then while the first round of fundraising that was end of fourteen was not very successful hmm. because institutions didn't believe this model would scale, neither did we. Yeah. Then all of a sudden. Half a year later, we ran into this new model that worked really well, and for the first time in the history of the company, we'd been two and a half years, two years old at that point. For the first time, capital was a constraint because if you take cars in inventory, you actually need to finance them for two sure, weeks. Sure, sure. And then turn them, and margins were really good. And so at that point, that's a really good time to raise money because you can demonstrate if you had more money, you could do more. Yeah, you, it's that's that holding that. time you had to cover. Exactly, amongst others, yeah. Yeah. And so that process took four weeks. That happened really quickly. Wow. And then fast forward. So that business scaled really nicely. We were selling about 150 cars a month soon after. Jeez. That sounds like a small number, but it's more than three and a half million dollars in revenue. Uh, yeah. Most, most used car dealerships are happy if they can push out 40 units a month. Exactly. Yes. And we did it all from a little garage. Like you want tech to keep things small and it allows you to do things that you can't do without tech. Right. And so then the question was, okay, what do we do now? Do we think we can scale this from 150 to 1,500 to 15,000? Or is there a better way? You always need to figure out what are your options sure. and what's the most valuable thing to do. Sure. In our case, the business became more operational than we wanted to. Uh -huh. We wanted to move bits and bytes and have servers. And yeah. instead we ended up with a call center and wow. used car factories practically and people, people like car mechanics and fixing cars. Jeez. And so one thing we had gotten really, really good at is we had this unique problem that we didn't have the cars with us. Uh -huh. like we were advertising thousands of cars every day, but none right. of these cars were with us. Right. So in order to describe what trim they have, what packages, options, what equipment was in the car, we needed to find a way how to use technology to describe vehicles. Sure. You'd think if you have the VIN of the car, you know everything, but that's not the case. Most, really? Most, most VINs don't tell you anything. Like they tell you, year make model sometimes yeah. trim. But if, if you have a if you have a BMW, you don't know whether it's the three twenty, three twenty eight i, three thirty five. Really, it doesn't tell you that stuff. No, I didn't know this. I I honestly didn't know this. That that's that's yeah. news to me. If I give you a BMW VIN of a three series, you know it's a three series, but it could be the base model or the one that's thirty thousand dollars more expensive that has is fully loaded. And so gotcha. we needed to become really good at describing vehicles that we didn't own. Right. 100% online. And so we, that's what we use tech for, tons of data stuff, uh, scraping and normalization. And so we were the first one who, who had had the problem of having to describe vehicles that are not in your possession. And Carvana ran into that problem a little later because they were growing so big that they couldn't, ha couldn't rely on people describing these cars. And then when we compared notes, because that's what you do if your competitors, you're in the same space, it's a huge space, like we never mm -hmm. felt like competitors. Mm -hmm. We told them, hey, we've built this, this is working really well for us. We started with the operational piece. Carvana said, well, we got the operational piece, we also got the financing, like they had the fully fledged experience. Mm -hmm. One thing they wanted to invest in was getting better at describing vehicles 100% digital. Yeah. We had already figured that out, at least like, the, the last the piece of the puzzle beginnings of the last piece of the puzzle nice and so then instead of raising more money we decided to sell what we had built to carvana and for the whole team to come over and join carvana 
and that's how the deal happened. And and you got so you are you are you a part of Carvana now or are you? Good question. So we stayed for three years, which was incredibly fun, obviously, because I bet I always describe it as it's switching lanes. We we I felt like we were driving a nice car going down the road, uh-huh. but at some point Carvana was just much faster than us, <laughs> and then we got the chance to just hop on their board uh, on their train and then go with them at full speed. And we had really interesting roles at Carvana. We we love the founders and executives. We're really good friends. And so that was a really fun experience. But after three years, the company had become really big. And Chris and I wanted to start another business. Had had a few convictions and insights. And so we left in June of this year to start a new company. That's all of a story. And this happened in the course of how many years? We ran our companies, uh, our company for four years, and we stayed with Carvana for three years. So seven years. Yeah, it doesn't feel like seven. Felt like seven days. <laughs> and then was that was going to be the next question? Did it really feel like that? Because I know a lot of entrepreneurs. They they, it's go go go, and then when they turn around and they look back, it's like holy crap. Yeah. Did so, that time? Number one, people always want to build companies overnight and think other companies going public. <laughs> overnight successes yeah that's right never true they're all overnight successes 10 years in the making yeah building a big company takes at least 10 years oh yeah if you look at all the ipos now like these companies you haven't heard of them but they're at least eight years old and if you ask the management like yeah no this is not a company yeah um the first four years when we were running uh, the first two years of running our company were fun because we kept experimenting. The yeah. second two years were really hard because we worked so hard. We just wanted to make this business work. And then at Carvana, it became really interesting because we switched from, at least that's true for me, from being like this entrepreneur in charge to becoming an employee. And so that, that, has some benefits you have a lot uh, more time i was gonna say how did how out. did that change yeah i was gonna say how did that change because at that point it's no longer the stress of you producing for the whole company you're still producing and there's still stress on your shoulders but i mean like your responsibility to the yeah. bottom line has kind of changed that's true the responsibility is the fun part so not having that feels like a relief for two weeks but then you're like oh, i really like that yeah the big difference in a big company and this is not not unique to Carvana. I think Carvana is really good at that, but other companies feel it too. Like you, you can only run so fast yep. because now you have a big team, you're integrating with a lot of other people. This business is very complex. And so like the progress was a little slower than what I was used in our startup because mm-hmm. we were scrappy. Yep. Um, and the big, as I said, it happens to every company. And so I, I just have had more time. Like I was, I was not the gating factor to getting a lot of things done. And so I didn't have to work on weekends and then I could take off at 6 PM, which we never did when we ran our own company. Yeah. Yeah. So that was nice to recharge. A bunch of my friends got married. I traveled a lot. And so now I'm really eager to be back in the weeds and uh, working 16 hour days and being really excited about the small successes. It's, it's an, it's an interesting thing that I learned with most entrepreneurs, especially when they experience what you've experienced going from being the guy out in the weeds versus the guy who's now a part of the, the machine. We, and I'm, I'm the same way. We find it for some weird reason, much more fun to be out in the weeds. Yeah, it we just, like the pain. <laughs> we like the Yeah. We're freaking gluttons for punishment. I swear. I mean, it's, <laughs> You, you know, people, you need your sleep. Eh, I'm sleeping, I'm dead. You know, eating's a bad habit. You know, that kind of whole thing. It, and, and I did this when I was in other, 
other businesses as well. When I was an investment manager for an angel investment group out of, out of California, I was always looking to see how much was the dedication for the people that are looking for that funding. Yeah. You know, uh, obviously this is pre, um, pre -P uh, POC proof of concept, excuse me, where people would be like, well, we, we have this idea. We have this. Okay, cool. How long have you been working on it? Well, we've worked on it for the last few months. Really? How many hours have you put in? <laughs> Never heard enough. Never heard Never enough. Never heard enough. Never heard enough. Because I know the moment I go back to the angels and I go, hey, they've been working on this for six months. They put in, you know, five or five or four hours a day on it. And they look at me and they go, are you out of your mind? Then they should have done that in two, two months. <laughs> they, yeah, they should have gotten all that shit done in two months. What, are they, what else are they doing? Well, they have jobs. Well, that's their problem. You know, it's it's interesting. The angel the angel investment world and the VC world both. It's interesting to what they put value on when it comes to who's driving this whole thing. And I'm sure yeah. you guys found that too. Yeah, but I think startups weren't very well understood for a long time. I think, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, like, had I told you even five or six years ago, every startup has a false start. You start with a conviction, and then you find out, oh, nobody wants this. Yeah. But then people tell you what they want, what what they want you to build, and then you build that. Yeah. And so that happens to every startup. Every startup pivots. Startups don't take three years; they take ten years. You have a distinct phase of what we call finding product market fit, so finding yep. something that people really love. Yeah. And then only then, when you feel like people are pulling it out of your hands and you you can't keep up with like all the demand, then you transition into a scaling phase and what do you use money for and what's a good and bad use for money. And I think there is much more clarity around it because people have just seen way more startups do good and bad things. And so now I think it's clearer, at least to me. I I'd have to agree with you because startups in the past would always be like, well, we got this wonderful project and a million and one stories around it. Of course, the difference between somebody coming in with a full laid out plan versus the guy that sits down and goes, Hey, if I could do this, would you be interested? Yeah. And it hits that nerve in the investor going, Holy shit, you can do that. Really? And then there's still that pivot that you mentioned, because even that may not be what the market wants might be what the investor's interested in, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's ready yeah. for market. There's also this nuance, something that Chris Bikov and I keep repeating over and over again because we didn't understand the first time. Uh -huh. First time founders are obsessed with product. Yeah. You're just obsessed with, I have this cool idea, this cool product, people will love it. Second time founders are like, well, I'm just obsessed with distribution, getting people, getting in touch with people, getting in front of people. Yeah. And then once I have a lot of a big audience and a repeatable way to acquire customers, I'll find out what they really want. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting uh, how the process seems to reverse itself once you're yeah, there. Yeah, you don't. You make other mistakes. Just don't make the same mistakes again. Right. You, yeah. Yeah. Well, and and what the the thing that I see with a good portion of startups is they have a tendency to be so stuck in what their 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 passion is they forget that they need That's, to do that. Well, it's tough because it's emotional. It's your little baby oh, all day. Yeah. You don't, you don't want to admit your baby's a little ugly today and uh, <laughs> requires a little bit of makeup or maybe a whole change. <laughs> so yeah, I can there's, understand that. I, I think there's more than one diaper change that's needed for any baby. So that just, that's just <laughs> that kind of how the, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why we went down that way, but it, it went that way. That was your fault. <laughs> I, 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 I own it. I own it. It's all good. Hey guys, we're going to take a short pause and we're going to come back. We'll talk a little bit more about motivations. Uh, and who your influencers are. We'll talk a little bit about where 
where you got where you got your inspirations from. That cool? Sure. Sounds okay, cool. cool. We'll be back in about 30 seconds, guys. We'll see you in a second. And we're back here at Java Chat, sitting here having a, a cool chat with Nicholas Henriksen, one of the founders of Carlipso that eventually merged into Carvana. Hell of a story, dude. I'm curious, who are the who are the major influences? Like when you were back at Stanford, did you have anybody that you kind of looked up to as far as the entrepreneurship side of things? Like whether it was a professor or an actual person in startups and stuff. And how did that affect you? I mean, what, what did that teach you? Yeah, very much so. I think it's important. And you only know when you have these people in your life, how valuable they are. Mm. When, so Chris and I were selling our classmates cars. Mm -hmm. And then I just didn't know what I was doing with my life. Like neither Chris... <laughs> Neither Chris thought this was going to be a business. We just spent the summer finding value. Right. And so I sat down with this gentleman. His name is Andy Rackler. I met him through school. He's a lecturer. He got his MBA at Stanford himself. He started Benchmark Capital, uh, the probably best, if not second best venture capital fund in the Valley. I was about to say, that name Radcliffe sounds familiar. Yeah. He was you got to sit down with him? Yeah, he's a friend. We become Holy friends. crap, dude. That is amazing. And so he was the first investor in eBay. He started this fund, Benchmark Capital. He left to start Wealth Fund. The fund invest was the first investor in, in Uber and in Snapchat. So incredibly successful. And so yeah. I sat down with him and I'm like, hey, Andy, I need your advice if you don't mind. I don't know what to do with my life. I really wanted to start a company, but I just can't find a good idea. Maybe I should work for a tech company or something. Mm -hmm. And then we grabbed a beer and after an hour, he said, I, I'm really sorry. I need to leave now. Uh, but I think you already made up your mind. I'm like, what do you mean? You should be selling cars. <laughs> and if you want to make this a company, he has $50,000 to get started. No way. Really? Yeah. And I'm like, what? It's <laughs> like, yeah, there's always a handful of students I want to support. I think you're onto something, not because of the idea. It's just because of your hustle of you've been selling cars. You remind me of other entrepreneurs who I've backed and who were really successful in the past. Huh. And yeah, let me know. No I'm way. Like, like just um, like handed you 50K and said, here, just go do this. Yeah. Like virtually he said, no, but, like, but, in the, but, but literally the man himself said, here, here's 50K. You already know what you're doing. Just go do that. Yeah. And so then I called Chris. I'm like, Chris, dude, we have a problem. He's like, what? <laughs> Andy wants to invest in us. And he's like, seriously, that's cool. Yeah. Where's the problem? I'm like, well, the problem is, hey, we don't know what, you're doing, what we're doing. And B, you're about to start a job in four weeks. Oh, <laughs> He's like, yeah, well, let me call them real quick. So he called this company that he wasn't really excited about, quite frankly, and said, hey, here's this unique opportunity. This is an opportunity that he has to do it now. If he does it later he'll, or if it's being presented later, he'll probably not take it. Right. And so we ended up, that kicked off our fundraise, and he's become like this really, really incredible mentor. Every time we, we don't know, like we, we are this right cross path and don't know which direction to go we ask Andy for advice he's, he's just a text message away and I just really really love how he thinks about entrepreneurship so that's one role model and uh, I'm, I'm feel really blessed and, and lucky to have him as a friend that's that is amazing and then um, I think it, like this whole entrepreneurship and wanting to start your own company I think that comes from somewhere else my grandfather had his own business nice my dad always wanted to be incredibly entrepreneurial. He's a, he's a doctor. He's a gynecologist specialized in fertility treatment. Mm -hmm. And he had his own practice and then started small clinics and 
joined a private equity fund and acquired more more, wow. more company practices and consolidated the market in Germany. And so I, like from from early on, I I saw how how much more energized he was working on like an entrepreneurial venture versus being an employee. And he was the one. It's funny because it's funny how life goes sometimes. I always wanted to study engineering, and I mm -hmm. said that when I was playing Lego in my like teens, yeah, <laughs> or even younger when I was five, six, seven. Uh -huh. And he said, "Yeah, you'll you'll definitely study engineering, and then at some point you'll get something like an MBA." And so an MBA is n that's not a thing you do in Germany. Like people don't know what that is. His brother had done it. His cousin had done it, and both felt, felt it was a really good experience. And then we never talked about MBA any again until I took my first job, did it for two years. And then wanted a break from that job because the company wasn't going anywhere. Right. And then I myself said, well, there's this thing called MBA. Maybe I should look into that. Right. And so I applied, got into Stanford, moved, and uh, the rest is history, obviously. But I think if it hadn't been for my dad, who, who has this entrepreneurial drive and who somehow mentioned MBA early on and planted a seed without knowing, uh -huh. without him knowing, I think I, think I wouldn't have, would have never chosen such an entrepreneurial path. Quite possible. Quite possible. Everybody comes from a different background. Sometimes it's the family that does it. Sometimes it's just somebody that's an inspiration. You had two mentors, Pops and, and Andy. <clears throat> and that whole, that whole decision to go into the MBA, what was that experience like? I mean, obviously, we're talking about Stanford here. So, I mean, but what was that experience like going through their MBA program? Well, the MBA, I think most people don't. Well, I didn't understand what it was. I had a perception. But, um, I was Most people blind. have perceptions and have no yeah. clue. <laughs> so it, it's not a super academic experience. You can choose it to be. Yeah. But I, I chose to do a lot of like run, run big risks, take classes in design thinking. And I learned Portuguese. It's funny that you mentioned that earlier. Yeah. Awesome. I did other engineering classes. And then I did a lot of classes around venture capital entrepreneurship, trying to really understand that. Yeah. The hard part is getting in. Once you're in, you're surrounded by these incredible people. We, we don't really have proper grades. Nobody discloses what grades you have at, at, at your MBA program. Therefore, all the employers won't ask you for it. Therefore, you take risk and take difficult classes sure. instead of taking easy classes. Sure. So there's a few things that are really, really cleverly done. And then you just meet a lot of people and make, make incredible friends. People always say you go to get your MBA because of the network. The network... Yeah. Is a sounds like a very transactional term. These are all your friends. Yeah. So when, when we, for example, <clears throat> were fundraising again two months ago, first thing we did, I just pinged all my friends who now work at these investment companies, at these mm -hmm. venture capital funds, and told them, hey, we're ready. It's like, perfect. I'll make the introduction to the partner. When is a good time? Yeah. So the, this, is, this is what's probably most valuable, including you make your best friends at business school. Yeah. That, it, it's for any college, USC, Stanford, here at UNLV, the, the, the networks of the alumni, it really is a friendship. It's, it's, you're, yeah. kind of, you, you're kind of part of a family, essentially, because these are people true, that, yeah, yeah you, can, you can pick up a phone and call them even if it's just to say, what's up, you know? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, that, it, there's a degree of comfort that you never have to worry about the defensive mechanisms that come up during cold calls and all that kind of extra stuff exactly, when you're talking yeah. to venture funds. Exactly. Um, I was part of a, um, I, and I still have some shares in it. I was part of a tech startup um, that was serving the meeting space. And we talked to a couple of, of funds 
And those came as a result of people's friends that they'd worked with before or gone to school with. So completely, absolutely true. It's interesting that the MBA isn't such an academic experience so much as it is a learning experience. And I hadn't actually even thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. You can make it as academic as you want. It just really depends on what you're really after. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's nice that the design is really, it really is in your hands at that point of what you want to get. You're super flexible. And like the interesting learnings come from doing something that's really cross-functional where you meet other people from other faculties. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed that part of the experience. Um, the entrepreneurship uh, program here at UNLV, I've, I've heard numerous times where the students from the entrepreneur MBA would be working with the computer science and engineering department constantly for new ideas because it's just like, what if we could do this? Well, I don't know how to build that. Go over to the engineering department, see if they can help. Guys. Yeah, they can figure yeah. it out. And, and, they, and they come up with some pretty cool stuff. I mean, I, one of the ones that I, I don't know if it'll ever come up, but I thought it was pretty cool was Smell-O-Vision. What is that? Smell-O-Vision is the ability to turn on aromas during a TV show. Oh, wow. And it would come out of this little Did box. Do that? They, they built a prototype. I don't know if it ever went anywhere. I haven't heard anything since, but they built a prototype. And the idea was that you could get certain scents mixed in from different things. Now, obviously for a real, a real version of that would have to be like super intricate. But the idea yeah. was, you the remember idea was the cool. movie Richie Rich? Yes. <laughs> he has this thing where he can smell things and then buy them or something. That's like that. right. I, that's right. I remember that. That's a different type of smell of vision, but yeah, that's the same idea. <laughs> yeah. I wonder who would invest in something like that. That would be pretty awesome. That would be fun, yeah. <laughs> that smells good. I'd like to order that on Uber Eats, please. In the midst of all of the stuff that you guys did, there's always roadblocks. Yeah. Every entrepreneur runs into them. You kind of talked about a couple. What are some of the biggest ones you learned lessons from? Well, you, you made, when you made the intro, you made me sound like I'm the superhuman, like I'm definitely not. But of I'm course you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. Every, every startup is like a bunch of failures in a row until something didn't fail. Yeah. There's actually the saying by Phil Knight, the guy who started Nike. He's like, yeah. there's nothing wrong with failing. You'll fail a lot. Just make sure you don't fail the last time you try. And so I think that's a good, good, good analogy for a metaphor for how startups work. And so in our case, we thought this peer-to-peer -peer model is the way to go. I'll help you, Michael, sell your car to somebody else. Mm -hmm wrong, didn't work. We worked on that for a year and a half, busted our butts, weren't going anywhere. Then we changed the model, just admitting that you need to change, change everything. That means you have a whole team that needs to understand it. The team liked the mission of the first business better, but didn't understand it wasn't a business. Right. So that was a failure. Then building out our company that ended up actually scaling quite a bit, but then realizing, oh, it's not the tech company we wanted to build, that felt like a failure. We, we sold to Carvana. The, the outcome is incredible, but like, we, we would have much rather acquired Carvana in some yeah, way. Yeah, right, right. So, which, like, I, I don't mind any of this. I have zero regrets. I think we learned so much. There was no, no better outcome we could have produced. Sure. And now we're really eager to, like, now we have a little bit of a chip on our shoulder to do it again, but this yeah. time. Like be the company that acquires other companies, and so yeah, we're, we're so you you guys have moved out of you guys have moved out of being owners and employees. You're now looking at investing. Is that what I'm hearing? 
no. So we, so yes and no. We we left Carvana. <laughs> we started our own next company. Uh huh. It's called Clutch. It's a digital platform to refinance auto loans. Nice. The domain is with clutch.com. Maybe you can put it. Well, in we we will. All of that stuff comes in in the comments. Absolutely. Because um, there's a lot of people who can save a lot of money, don't even know they can. And in parallel, we do some angel investing. Mm-hmm. Small checks to friends who who remind of our remind remind us of ourselves. Sure, Back sure. then, when we were like in the weeds, struggling. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the new business, like we want that to be really big and have a lot of impact and help a lot of people save a lot of money. And so I think the fact that we were acquired created a little bit of a chip on our shoulder that keeps motivating us to yeah. still be really impactful ourselves. Sure, sure, that's awesome. When you when you're doing those little things, I, I I get it that you're looking for the people that are motivated like you guys were. But what are the kinds of things that you guys actually look to invest in? So I I think there's let's see there's two different types of people I invest in. I love South America. <laughs> so every person who who has a good education understands startups and goes back to Brazil to start a company, I would just write a small blind check because A, I love the country, B, I know it's a small community and they all know each mm-hmm. other. Mm-hmm. Um, often they start businesses that work somewhere else and mm-hmm. Brazil is just a little behind. So these are just really interesting business to invest in. Or in founders who, who just really embrace getting advice if there is any to give and who remind us of ourselves, like in the weeds, not trying to tell you the big picture and this huge vision of what you're trying to build, but actually investing in the right discovery process. Sure. And so those, without me actively seeking, if people approach me or if I, if somebody tells me, hey, I know these guys, would you talk to them? And I meet them and I think I understand what they're doing. They never write a check. That's cool. That's always cool. Hey guys, want to take one more short break? We are at about the 40 minute mark. I'm going to take one more break. And come back and wrap up and ask for a little bit of advice for you, from you sure. for our entrepreneurs and people that are thinking about stuff. So just 30 seconds and we'll be right back, y'all. All right, guys, back here with Nicholas Henriksen, um, now of Clutch, uh, conformally of Carlifson Carvana. What drives you, dude? I mean, <laughs> I, 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 get, I get the fact we love to be out in the weeds and that's just kind of how we are, but what, what motivates you? What, what really moves you to get moving? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. So when here's a, here's a, an anecdote that I think explains it really well. When we graduated from business school, we had one lecture entrepreneur himself tell us, Hey guys, you need to understand you're in a very, very unique position mm-hmm. compared to everyone else. You're leaving Stanford business school. You could have almost any job you want right now. You'll all make a lot of money. So don't worry about that. Like what you should do now is you should worry about how can you have the biggest impact? Because even if you start a company and fail, you can always go back to the other job. Like it's not gonna run away. Right. And so you'd be silly to not explore ways to have disproportionate impact. It'll pay for you like multifold, but especially the ability to have impact on a lot of people because of your plan B is what you should be striving for. And so that resonated very much with me because it's so true. It's, mm-hmm. it's true. Like, Ultimately, you want to ask yourself, what do you want to be remembered for? And I don't right. want to be remembered for like having worked in a consulting company or an investment bank all my life, even right. if you may have impact. Like, I want to be remembered for helping Americans save tons of money on their cars. Like, that's something where I feel like oh, I, I left the mark and made, made a little dent and helped 
help people get out of like bad places and bad situations. And so that motivates me. And in the past, money motivated me more than it does now because mm-hmm. I'm realizing the money, like if you impact a lot of people, the money will come automatically. Mm-hmm. The more you impact, the more money you'll get. But it really, the driving force needs to be the impact, not the money. Because if you strive for money, you you won't necessarily have the impact. Yeah. So that that's what I learned, and um, admittedly, it took a little bit of time. Yeah. <laughs> it took me a little bit. It also took me to have a little bit of money to understand. Oh, if I go after the asset, the other the other thing will. Uh, if I go after the impact, the money will come. Yeah. And so yeah, that's that's what I'm in for, and that's what I'm looking forward to, especially with the new business clutch, because mm-hmm. <clears throat> there is the opportunity to help a lot of people. I think it's it's our opportunity to address income inequality in a very creative way, and so that's what motivates me. That's sweet. When you're looking at the, the, the point of being in a startup or being a startup or thinking about doing a startup or something like that, what's a, what's a good piece of advice you think you can give to some people out there that are just, you know, they have it in their mind. They have this wonderful idea and they're thinking about running into this whole thing called the startup. Yeah. Well, what, what would you be your best piece of advice for them? The most important thing is to get it out of your mind and do something. <laughs> for as long as it's in your mind, two things happen. A, you're not doing anything. B, you're actually talking yourself out of it. You find too many reasons why something wouldn't work. And if you, if you just know for a fact that whatever you start will change based on things you learn, then I think you approach it differently. Then you say, okay, let's get this, this failure out of the way really quickly so I can discover something that really works. And so my piece of advice would be just get started. Like just do it. Don't find reasons not to do it. Find reasons to take baby steps. The most important thing is to end up talking to customers, to potential customers, because they'll tell you what they want and they'll tell you why what you have in mind isn't worth pursuing. And so that allows for learning and that allows you to find something that really works. It's such a resounding theme when I ask that question is take a step. Exactly, yeah. Do something. Don't let it sit proliferating in your head. That whole negative self-talk comes way too easy, especially for exactly. entrepreneurs. We're, we're, we're masters at talking ourselves out of shit. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, at least twice, right? I I think one of the the big safeguards of that is possibly taking a look in that mirror and going, am I doing this to myself? And being honest with it. That's probably true. Yeah, Yeah. I I would agree. So you've begun a new business. You're being an angel investor. Obviously, you've reached a a level of success that that right now you're obviously happy with and, and looking forward to much more. What would you think is the biggest challenge that you guys are dealing with right now, or you personally? Let's see. So I, I feel like lucky that things feel a little easier this time sure. around than last you, time. You get it this time, yeah. The, the challenge still is, I, I'm not going to do a good job repeating this quote, but there is this quote saying it's much easier to, to tell people they have been fooled. No, it's, sorry. It's much easier to fool people than to explain to people that they have been fooled. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so this is, this is basically <laughs> what we're going on against. People, people have a car loan, and it was much easier to sell them the first car loan at sure. the dealership sure. than it is to tell them, hey, you've been fooled back then. <laughs> sell you a better loan. People always were like, no, no, no. I think, I think you're wrong. You're like, no, no, dude. 
you don't trust car dealerships, right? Yeah. So why did you trust them with your personal financial products? Like, oh, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> and so I think awareness, creating awareness, which is part of the reason I love talking about the topic and mm-hmm. I'm thankful that you, Michael, and I can have this conversation here. Absolutely. You just need to know that you, you can refinance your auto loan and save thousands of dollars. And uh, we'd love to be there for them when, if the time's right. I may have a solution for you on that one. We'll talk about that later because getting information out is always a challenge, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to putting out facts. By the way, I've, I have friends that work in the auto industry and I've asked them about that whole thing. And they're like, you realize that when they finance a car, they make way more money than if they sell it for cash. Mm-hmm. And I was like, explain. And they did. And my, I remember my jaw being on the ground for about a minute going, are you effing kidding me? Yeah, that's what's happening. Uh, but, uh, but nobody knows. Nobody knows this stuff. Because of everything that gets wrapped into it. Yeah. So, (laughs) I mean, yeah, I I think I I may have something for you on that. We'll definitely talk about that. So we've already mentioned clutch.com. That's one place they can find you. Where else can people find you? Probably the easiest way to connect with me is on LinkedIn. And I really enjoy having new connections. So feel free to reach out if you have questions, advice, feedback. Feedback is a gift. So don't hesitate. Uh, I'd love for you guys to connect with me. And it's just look for Nicholas Henriksen. On LinkedIn, you'll find me immediately. I'm sure Michael put the LinkedIn into, yep. into the show notes too. And then uh, I look forward to connecting. Uh, and I'm not sure if we're connected, but we will be after this. That's for damn sure. sure. We will be. Um, <laughs> listen, I want to thank you for sharing your story. I'm sure there's much more that you can share. There's more stuff to talk about when it comes to fundraising, posturing, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, would love to have you back to talk a little bit more about Clutch too and, and how things are going down the road. Yeah. yeah. This has been fun, man. I really enjoyed this. Same uh, here. Thanks for having me. I feel flattered. You take uh, flattered. I'm the one who's flattered. Goodness gracious. And you know Andy Radcliffe. What the hell? <laughs> and now I know Nicholas Henriksen. What the hell? <laughs> but no, we're not yet there. But <laughs> one day maybe. Yeah. Well, it, remember you. <laughs> yeah. I'm. 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 I'm always glad when I can actually say they know me. That's that's my that's my biggest joy is when somebody when somebody can actually go back to that person and go, do you know who my colleague? Oh yeah, the crazy Hawaiian with the coffee chat. Yeah, I know him. <laughs> I'm, I'm all right with that. So you guys know how we love to end this. It's always the same. We always tell you we love every one of you. We hope the best for every one of you. Stay up, stay safe, stay healthy, and live. From both of us to all of you. Ciao for now. Ciao for now. For more information on Java Chat, visit www.javachatpodcast.com. You've been listening to Coffee with Mike on Java Chat. Tune in weekly to this podcast for the next episode. You can also download or subscribe today on your favorite podcast platform. A production of Oasis Media Group, LLC. Located in Las Vegas, Nevada. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved.